The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today in-depth podcast for February 5th through the 11th. On this week's show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This episode is normally exclusive to my Patreon and OnlyFans members. However, this particular episode is one of my favorite ones to do, so I thought I would share it with everybody. If you like this podcast and want to hear more podcasts like this and support music history podcasts such as this one, then please consider joining my Patreon or OnlyFans pages. They're under patreon.com slash musichistorytoday and onlyfans.com slash musichistorytoday, respectively. The links are also in the show notes. The year was 2001. America, while not in a state of innocence per se, still thought themselves untouchable to a major international terrorist attack. That changed on the morning of September 11th. What started out that day as primary election day in New York City, along with the announcement of Michael Jordan returning to play basketball in the NBA, became a multi-city airplane attack. After that day, the country was in mourning and pain. What helped to begin the healing process? especially in New York City, where almost 3,000 people were killed in the terrorist attacks, was a Baseball World Series matchup only a month later between the New York Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Through those epic seven games, with Arizona winning the series on a last at-bat, the city and the nation began the healing process. What does this all have to do with the events of the week of February 5th through the 11th in 1964? Just this. Sometimes, in order for a nation to begin to heal from a shared traumatic event, it takes pop culture and sports to distract the country from its problems. If only for a night, or, in this particular case, a week. In order to understand how monumental that week in 1964 was, you have to understand the mindset of the country at that time. Flashback to only a few months earlier. In November 1963, President John F. Kennedy was beginning to be in a bit of a funk. 
his re-election bid was still a ways off, but he was beginning to lay the groundwork for it. He had started off the year with a 76% approval rating, with a 13% disapproval rating, but by November 1963, those numbers were going in the wrong direction. Some of it due to racial tensions and his handling of the civil rights crisis in the South. Vietnam, remember, at that time was barely a blip on the radar in America since America was only sending, quote, military advisors, end quote, back then. Anyway, by November 1963, his approval ratings had slipped from 76% to 58%, while his disapproval ratings had leapt up from 13% to 30%. Add to that, there were problems in Texas. Texas was a state that he barely won in the 1960 election. Plus, there was a lot of infighting in the Democratic Party in the state. He decided to do a quick swing through Texas. He wanted to help start his re-election campaign there, raise money for the Democratic Party, and, of course, to help end the squabble within the state party. The morning of November 22, 1963, Kennedy started out by speaking at a breakfast meeting in Fort Worth, Texas. From there, he flew to Dallas, where he was supposed to speak at a luncheon at the Trademark, then fly that afternoon to Austin for a fundraising dinner. The president landed in Dallas, where he was met by a large crowd at Love Field Airport. He then got into his convertible limo with his wife, Jackie, and the governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie. As the motorcade made its way through Dallas, the crowd grew much bigger, slowing down the motorcade. The crowd on Houston Street was particularly big. However, they were going to turn onto Elm Street and go through Dealey Plaza, where the crowd was a little thinner. The car made the left-hand turn on, off of Houston Street onto Elm Street. As it began going through Dealey Plaza, Nellie Connolly turned to President Kennedy and said, quote, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, end quote. To which Kennedy said, quote, No, you certainly can't, end quote. At that moment, just behind his right shoulder, a gun was pointed at him from an upper floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald, fired three shots at the slow-moving limo. By the time the third shot struck the president, the crowd of witnesses... Deep State members, shooter on the grassy knoll, FBI killers, CIA killers, mob killers, Cuban killers, aliens, President Obama, and just about every other person who's been implicated in the assassination by conspiracy theorists looked on in stunned, screaming disbelief. The motorcade sped up, got on the nearby freeway, and rushed to the hospital but to no avail. The third shot 
was the kill shot. Within an hour of the first shot, President John F. Kennedy Jr. was pronounced dead. The country went into a state of deep mourning. It was going to take something big to break them out of their national state of grief. Little did anyone know that a music act that was just beginning to make a name for themselves overseas would help to begin to heal America long before an overseas war later in the decade would help to rip the country apart at the seams. Across the pond, there were four lads from Liverpool. The Beatles had put out their first album in Europe earlier in 1963, then went touring through Europe to support it. As they toured, the crowds became bigger and bigger, and soon what we now call Beatlemania started to form. Throngs of adoring fans, mainly female, started showing up at the concerts. And in the streets, and at their hotels, and at the airports. On Halloween 1963, the lads were coming back to Heathrow Airport from a trip to Sweden. They were met in the airport by a swarm of people, including over a hundred reporters. Also in the airport, on that exact same day, was a man who would go on to play a pivotal role in them getting their big break in America. Ed Sullivan had the number one show in America at that time in terms of variety shows. What Dick Clark was to pop music on daytime television, Ed Sullivan was to nighttime television. His show broke Elvis Presley and helped to turn him into a megastar. Ed witnessed the Beatles' hysteria and thought that it reminded him of Elvis. Ed got in touch with Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager, and offered him a lot of money to do one appearance on his show. Brian had a better idea. He knew that the Beatles had to conquer America. They had already conquered Europe. He made a deal with Sullivan where the band would do multiple appearances and also do a quick tour of the United States at the same time. The PR machine got to work. Capitol Records, who were supposed to be their American distributor, refused to release the album believing that rock and roll in America was a fad and was dead. At that point, rock and roll had given way to teen idols playing a sugar-coated version of pop music. Rock never died in England, though, which is what gave rise to the Beatles in Europe in, to begin with. So, in a sense, Capitol Records were right, at least about American audiences. Even magazines and newspapers considered the genre dead, wondering aloud and in print why a boy band from England was such a big deal. It didn't matter. This was different. So, Capitol Records were initially dropped, but then later reinstated in favor of VJ Records. The single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was released in late December, playing first at WWDC Radio in Washington, D.C., then making its way to the other major cities. 
The song hit number one in January 1964. Two albums were released that month, one by Capitol Records and the other by VJ due to Capitol being dropped, then not dropped. There was another song that was released around that time, which we're going to talk about next. The song She Loves You was written over two days during a tour stop in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The band were on a triple bill at the time with Roy Orbison and Jerry and the Pacemakers. The song was originally loosely based on a Bobby Rydell song, but they scrapped that idea and kept one part of that song that seemed to work at the time, which was a part that was written in the third person. As John Lennon put it in an interview shortly before he passed away, the third-person idea was Paul McCartney's because John would have written it about himself. John admired Paul for that. Oh, and yes, by then they had repaired their friendship, and yes, they were in contact and talking to each other. They did not hate each other until the end, as some people would have you believe. Anyway... The writing of She Loves You was completed, and on July 1st, 1963, they went to record it. Some people thought that there were too many, quote, Americanisms, end quote, in the lyrics. Plus, producer Sir George Martin thought the chord that George Harrison suggested they end the song on was bad. But it didn't matter. They did it anyway. Total days spent from recording to mixing the song? Four days. It was that quick. In 1964, they re-recorded the song in German in order to please their German record label. She Loves You was released in Great Britain on August 23, 1963, where it was a big hit right out of the gate. America was where it had its problems. First, there was the fact that Capitol Records weren't really trying to push the band. The band found VJ Records, but that label had issues paying money, so the band licensed the song out to Swan Records on a two-year agreement. The public and critics' reaction to the song? Meh. Radio stations were less than gracious. One New York DJ put the song up against four other songs in a popularity contest one night. She Loves You placed third. Dick Clark gave it a spot on American Bandstand in his Raider Records segment. The song didn't do well at all, scoring in the low 70s out of 100. So, how did She Loves You end up being such a big song? Well, in a way, by the most trusted man in America. For decades, CBS newscaster Walter Cronkite was considered the most trusted man in America. His no-nonsense, that's-the-way-it-is style made his broadcast the most-watched evening newscast every single night. Remember, kids, this was 1963. There was no Internet, no Twitter, no Facebook, no YouTube. Everybody got their news from either the newspaper, the radio, 
or evening news broadcasts. So those broadcasts were appointment television, especially since there was no VCR at that point either, so you couldn't record them. And tens of millions of people watched them. On November 22, 1963, the CBS Morning News ran a piece on the Beatles, with She Loves You being played throughout much of the report. Cronkite thought the response to the report was so good that he decided to run it again for his evening news broadcast. Unfortunately for the Beatles and for the world, destiny interfered when, just after noon that same day, another story that we spoke about earlier would dominate the news for the next few weeks nonstop, which was, of course, the aforementioned assassination of President John F. Kennedy Jr., The rebroadcast of the Beatles piece would, of course, have to wait. The piece, though, didn't have to wait too long. It ran on the very popular CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite broadcast on December 10, 1963. By then, people needed something to distract them from their collective misery And watching the hype of British Beatlemania did the trick. And, hey, what was that catchy song that the broadcast kept playing? The record label released I Want to Hold Your Hand rapidly in order to capitalize on the publicity. But soon, other Beatles songs were caught up in the wake of I Want to Hold Your Hand, including She Loves You. If Hand was the horn of the Beatles train in America... Then She Loves You was the engine that helped to push that train. The song started climbing the charts, but a funny thing happened. She Loves You stayed longer on the charts than most of the other songs and sold more copies than most of the other songs. In total, She Loves You sold over 5 million copies in America. Rolling Stone magazine considers it the 64th greatest song of all time. It's one of the top 100 best-selling 45 RPM records of all time in America, too. And also, one of the lyrics, yeah, 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 became a popular catchphrase in the mid-1960s. To build on the popularity of I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You, the public relations machine needed to make sure that the Beatles' arrival in New York City went extremely well and, on top of that, was well-publicized with a huge crowd to create the Beatlemania. Many deals had been struck for fans who showed up to the airport to get free merch, because who doesn't love free merch? Capitol Records gave out posters and car stickers, while another company announced that they were giving out a Beatles t-shirt and a $1 bill. One radio DJ, Murray Kay of WINS Radio in New York City, announced the flight number and the time of the plane. Pan Am Flight 101. On February 7, 1964, the Beatles were met at Heathrow Airport by 4,000 fans to see them off to America. All the band and their entourage knew was that a couple of their songs had actually done pretty well in America. So they were under the impression that their reception would be 
just a tad quieter than the one that they just left in Europe. They were wrong. Very, very wrong. Over 3,000 people met the band at the Worldport Terminal at the newly named John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, better known as JFK. The band got off the plane, waved to the extremely excited screaming fans, then went into the terminal to give their now-famous press conference. The boys, of course, charmed the press by joking around with them concerning all things, from their haircuts to the city of Detroit doing a Stamp Out the Beatles campaign. Then, the band were whisked away to the Plaza Hotel across from Central Park. There, they were greeted by hundreds more fans who had to be held back by lots of police. They set up camp on the 12th floor of the hotel. Some of the people allowed to see them that day were the Ronettes, DJ Murray Kay of WINS Radio, BBC presenter Brian Matthews, who was doing an interview with them, and George Harrison's sister, who at the time lived in the state of Illinois, but flew in to see George. That was day one. February 7th, 1964. The British invasion had barely just begun. Before we continue with the Beatles, there is a very honorable mention. On February 6, 1945, the person most responsible for bringing reggae from the streets of Trenchtown, Jamaica, to the world at large was born. Happy birthday to Mr. Bob Marley, whose career we covered in the in-depth podcast for May 11th on the anniversary of his passing. There was one other big event, in a way, that happened this week in history. On February 5, 1967, the British newspaper News of the World published an article called Pop Stars and Drugs, Facts That Will Shock You. The article was about LSD parties that were attended by members of the Rolling Stones, the Who, and other British rock stars. One part of the article claimed that Mick Jagger took Benzedrin and got young girls to go back to his apartment to smoke and do things that young girls and guys apparently do, I guess. Mick sued the newspaper since it was actually Brian Jones and not Mick who used Benzedrin. News of the World, though, got back at the Rolling Stones by staking out Keith Richards' place and told the cops about drug use at the place, which got Mick and Keith arrested on drug charges along with Marion Faithful, who was there at the same time. 
Between 2006 and 2011, though, News of the World was embroiled in its own scandal when investigations discovered that the newspaper had hacked into celebrity cell phone conversations and exposed their secrets. News of the World was shut down in 2011. Now, back to the Beatles. On February 9, 1964, at 8 p.m., a television viewer had a few choices on what to watch. For instance, on ABC at 8 o'clock, you could watch The Travels of Jamie McFeeters, a Western starring Charles Deathwish Bronson, a then 12-year-old Kurt Russell, and members of the Osmond Brothers singing troupe, No, Not Donnie and Marie, they were way too not even in existence at that point. You could follow that up, I suppose, at 8.30 with a show called Arrest and Trial, a cops and lawyers show starring Chuck the Rifleman Connors and Ben Gazzara. It was basically Law and Order about two decades before Law and Order came into existence. Over on NBC... You could watch such family fare as The Wonderful World of Disney in Color, followed by a show called Grindle, starring the very funny comedian Imogene Coca as a woman who worked for a temp agency who got jobs that she was never qualified to do. That night's episode was called Dial G for Grindle. In the episode... Grindle was hired by a woman whose husband hired a gang leader to kill her. Hilarity and hijinks ensued. Wonder why that show only lasted a year. Sounds like a classic. Hmm. Anyway, over on Fox, when there was a test pattern, Fox didn't exist. In fact, back in 1964, you had extremely few choices as to what to watch And that's if your rooftop antenna could pick up those channels to begin with. Although NBC had two shows that are now considered classics, Disney and Bonanza, which was on at 9 p.m., it was the CBS lineup that had the classic shows in 1964. Your night started off with Mr. Ed, Wilbur, then went to Lassie, My Favorite Martian, The Judy Garland Show, Candid Camera, uh, for you kids out there, Candid Camera was punked before there was such a show called Punked. Also, the game shows What's My Line and To Tell the Truth. At 8 p.m., though, especially on February 9th, 1964, you were more than likely tuned to just one show, The Ed Sullivan Show. Ed's variety show really had variety. He had puppeteers, Broadway stars, singers, actors, and at that point, guys who sang standards and teen idols. 
remember, even though Ed broke Elvis Presley into the mainstream, rock was still considered dead. Plus, even Elvis was doing movies by then, and bad ones at that. Sorry, Grandpa. The only thing anybody remembers about that particular night was that the Beatles were on for what seemed like an hour. They weren't. There was renowned magician Fred Capp, whose performance was blissfully pre-taped because they needed to do a set change between segments. Besides, if he had done his act live right after the Beatles, he would never have gotten through it. Hell, Ed had trouble just introducing the segment with all the screaming girls still needing to be hosed down after the Beatles first performed. Also on the show that night were an acrobatic troupe called Wells and the Fortes and some kid singing a Broadway song. More on that kid later. At 8 p.m., Ed Sullivan had his usual show intro. He got on stage. The crowd was already riled up. And then Ed said his now famous intro, Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And history began to be made, although no one knew it at the time. The band started with All My Lovin', which went into Till There Was You. After that, they played She Loves You, which sent the audience into the stratosphere. The producer of the show cut between the band and the hyperventilating girls, your grandparents, I might add, if they bring up anything about how you go crazy over Bieber, Riri, BTS, or whoever these days. At one point, there was even a caption put under a shot of John Lennon that said, Sorry girls, he's taken as he was married to Cynthia Lennon at the time. After She Loves You came the Fred Cap segment. The band came back to play I Saw Her Standing There and I Want to Hold Your Hand, and their part of the show was done. The poor acrobatic troupe had to do cleanup duty, along with that singing kid. The band would play the next two Sundays on the show, one of which was actually taped beforehand. In the meantime, the band went on that short tour of the United States. The significance of that night cannot be understated. First, it went a long way towards healing the nation after JFK's death, although the nation would be ripped to shreds a few years later by civil rights, more assassinations, including President Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the assassination of Malcolm X, and, of course, the Vietnam War. Second, it reinvigorated rock and roll in America. Soon, every record label had to have its own British rock band. The Kinks, the Rolling Stones, the Who, etc. started the trek across the pond, and that became known as the British Invasion. After that, rock music became the most popular music in the country and was no longer simply considered a fad. Third, the Ed Sullivan Show that night set the record at the time for the most watched broadcast in television history 
with 73 million people watching, which was roughly 40% of the entire United States population at that time. That record would be broken, by the way, a few years later, when the series finale of the TV show The Fugitive aired, when everybody found out who the one-armed man was. As for all of the players involved, the Beatles, of course, became arguably the most important group in music history and pretty much changed the game forever. Ed Sullivan had his legendary show for about another decade. Oh, uh, back to that singing kid who was on the show that night. The kid sang I'd Do Anything from the Broadway musical Oliver, where he was performing as the Artful Dodger. Towards the end of the decade, that kid, then all grown up, auditioned for and got a role on a TV show about the madcap adventures of a band that acted a lot like the Beatles did in their music videos and movies. This group in the show would go on to have hits of their own, and the kid would become a teen idol in his own right. That show was The Monkees, and that kid who performed on the same show with The Beatles and would later imitate them as an adult, Davy Jones, who was also the reason why an artist named David Jones had to change his real name to the one he'd spend the rest of his career as, David Bowie. Funny how the world works. The week that changed the world forever. The Beatles landing in America on February 7, 1964. And the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan TV show on February 9, 1964. And that is it for the Music History Today in-depth podcast for February 5th through February 11th. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, catering, basically everything is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc. Look for them all under Music History Today when you search for us there. If you would like to support this podcast, our paid OnlyFans can be found at OnlyFans.com backslash Music History Today. And our Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash musichistorytoday. We are also on Twitter at musichistoryday. And you can find us on YouTube and Spotify. Just search for us under Music History Today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>